Thank you, Roy and Ludmila and Pastor. Thank you very much. Спасибо. Thank you very much. How do you say uh, in Russian, praise the Lord, Slava Boga? Say with me, Slava Boga? Say with me, Slava Boga. Slava. That means praise the Lord, praise the Lord. And we praise the Lord for you and the work in Russia. And we praise the Lord for George and Ludmila. They're proof that we can't put God in a box. I was on that missions trip and uh, heard about their uh, marriage. When we rendezvoused, we were, we were in different parts of Siberia. And then I thought, oh, no, I have to tell Brother Ralph. Brother Ralph was the leader of our trip. What am I going to do? And uh, his reaction was priceless. But, boy, it worked out. And we are glad you are here. I took my son on that missions trip. He was 15 years old. He's a police officer today. He was complaining about the size of his bedroom. He said his friends have larger bedrooms. So I took him to Siberia. I did. He never complained again. And while there in Bible study in a factory, he had the opportunity of lead, leading nine young people to the Lord. You know what that does to a 15-year-old? Just changed his life. Changed his life. Participate in missions. And thank you to Roy. Thank you, brother, and your whole team for keeping that as a forefront of the church. It's wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. Um, this is all because of a wonderful event before us. We're going to celebrate the Lord's coming, a wonderful Christmas event, and uh, you've been hearing about it, and you'll want to get your tickets, and you'll want to think about bringing friends because it'll be the story of the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what this is all about. So we look forward to the holidays before us, but for some, we know it's going to be a challenging time, so I've been asked to highlight this announcement uh, our counseling center is uh, sponsoring something as they do annually called Surviving the Holidays. This may be the first for you, Thanksgiving and Christmas, without a, a loved one. And we, we sympathize with you. We want to help you. So this is an opportunity for you. It'll start, uh, not tonight, but next week, November, Lord willing, November 14th. A week from tonight, 7.15, in this building, uh, in the West Wing, room 11.15. And we will mention it to you again next week. It starts at 7.15, lasts approximately two hours. It will cost $5 because you will receive a booklet. If that's something you cannot manage, then not to worry. We want you coming. You do not have to register in advance. Just come. You will find it to be a safe place for you and your hurt. And uh, you will find similarly situated people and others who are going to help you try to make some sense with what's going on inside of you. They're going to give you some assistance for, well, just as the class is entitled, Surviving the Holidays. So please keep this in mind. Uh, you do not have to be a member of Sagemont Church. It's a ministry of this church for anybody who wishes to come. If you know someone for whom this might be helpful, you don't have to give us any advance notice. Just bring them. 7.15 next week, West Wing, room 11.15, surviving the holidays. We want to help you survive the holidays, and we want to help each other survive the results of the election. Did you know the election is over? Are you aware of this? <clears throat> And uh, what are we going to do now? Uh, well, 
uh, I decided to take just a few minutes to, um, to make a few suggestions, and the best one I could think of right now is for us to just growl. So can you say with me on three, can you just go, <clears throat> okay, one, two, three. <clears throat> there you go. Doesn't that feel better? What I actually had in mind is not uh, any incentive to anger or bitterness. I wanted that actually to be an acronym for four uh, words starting with the letter R. <clears throat> and uh, I think this is going to help us to respond to what has happened. So the first R is to remember, remember. We have to remember in the midst of all of this change which is befalling us, we have to remember unchangeable truths. And so I'm going to utter them in order and I'd like you to recite it after me. Uh, so let's remember in spite of all that's going on in our day, let's remember and uh, I'll say it, then you repeat after me. God is still on his throne. And Jesus is still king of kings. And the Bible is still God's word. And the tomb is still empty. And Jesus is still the only way to heaven. And prayer is what really changes things. And God is still with us. Those are things to remember. Don't get distracted by changes from unchangeable truths about the unchangeable God who is our rock. So that's the first R in our response uh, to what has happened. Remember, here's the second, reaffirm. So the first R is remember, and the second is reaffirm our belief and our confidence in the unchangeable truths of the faith that has changed our uh, lives. So once again, would you repeat after me? My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame but wholly lean on Jesus' name. That's our affirmation. So the first response to things that uh, apparently don't go our way uh, is to remember unchangeable truths. The second is to reaffirm our confidence in them. And here's our third suggested response, another R word, rejoice. Come on. Come on. Rejoice. The Lord is king. Rejoice. And sing. Let's sing on Christ the solid. Sing with me. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is. Please don't let anything extinguish the song that the Lord's Spirit has put in our hearts. So the first R is to remember. And the second is to make your reaffirmation to those truths that have set us free. And then the third R is to rejoice. And the fourth R is to make requests of Almighty God. That is to pray. Would you allow me to lead us in now? But first I want to tell you something that I was rebuked for uh, when we had a uh, a uh, two presidents ago, two presidents ago, 
I uh, invited our congregation here to pray, and a, a wonderful lady with a little misunderstanding told me, I'll never pray for that man. She was disturbed by the man's misbehavior. I understand why she was disturbed, but uh, I, I don't think I explained entirely what I meant by praying. Uh, first of all, we are commanded. Did you know this? So when we're looking for how, what is the Christian response to, to what has happened, uh, well, this is a very clear mandate. It says to be sure to pray for kings and all who are in authority so that we might live a godly life in all godly, a tranquil life in all godliness and dignity. So when we pray, as I'm going to lead us for our president, respectfully, <clears throat> when we pray, we're saying, oh, God, Confirm his right decisions. Veto those that are wrong. Oh, God, so use him as a vehicle so that our freedom to move and to go and to worship and to sing and to witness and to bring glory to your name is not in any way threatened by any policies coming from a mere man or a mere government. And then we want to pray, oh God, that you might give our leader wisdom so that he can make wise decisions. And then we want to pray that our leader, don't we pray this for one another, that we might come to know the Lord more and more and more. Don't we want to pray that our president might come to know the Lord in spirit and in truth. These are the things that we pray. We do not have to support policies. We don't have to feel good about it. No, we shouldn't. We cannot, we have no option to opt for things contrary to the will of God. We must maintain the sanctity of human life. We must maintain the sanctity of marriage. We must respectfully decline to get in line and vote yes to ungodliness. We cannot do that. But we have to pray for those in positions of authority so that the freedoms we experience here, which our brother in his land have not for decades, and perhaps even now are not, we are, continue, we, we are continuing. A, we have a 170-foot cross out there that the world may know, but they're not able to put crosses on the church in Siberia. I love the process of democracy that the Lord has blessed us with. Our president did not force himself into office. He was voted in by like-minded people. Our president is not in any way the problem. I must tell you, it's much deeper and more severe than that. Two states just joined others in voting for the legitimacy of same-gender marriage. Two other states voted for the legalization of marijuana use as a recreational drug. For crying out loud, the Lord has simply given us a, present, a president consistent with the heart of our nation. So we have to, let's not pin this on one person for crying out loud. We're seeing a reflection of an anti-God drift in America and worldwide that we need to do war against, spiritual war. Let's start right now. Would you allow me to pray? Lord Jesus, this is the fourth R. We make our requests to you. We request that you not turn your back on our country. Oh, God, we think you would be justified in so doing, for we have been blessed amongst nations, so greatly privileged. 
and we have squandered it. We know this, and we make no excuses. So our appeal to you, O God, is simply on the basis of your mercy. O thou great and merciful God, have mercy on our nation. Make us to be the beacon of light we have been and still yet can be again. Lord Jesus, have mercy. And, O God in heaven, these who have put their hope in a human agency, are in a wonderful position to find out that it is hope misplaced. We actually want that to happen, Lord Jesus, not that there be pain as an end in itself, but that people and their dependence on other people would prove to be bankrupt so that dependencies could be transferred to you. Apparently, the way it is, Lord Jesus, is that we have to come to the end of ourselves before we look up. And if it takes some kind of turmoil and even greater collapse than we have ever anticipated before we look upon you, call upon you, then, Lord Jesus, it would be worth it all. So I just do pray that you use our president as a vehicle of the outpouring of your redemptive will. And we want this to be with his cooperation, but it can be in spite of him. That's just how great you are. We thank you for his beautiful and wonderful family, and we pray for their well-being. And, oh, God, we would love it if our president's daughters would come to be in your embrace and speak into their father's life. And we would love it if our first lady, a beautiful first lady, oh, God, would become a temple of your Holy Spirit. And, oh, God, what we would love more than ever if the President of the United States, with so many responsibilities and burdens and stressors, oh, God, would come to a point of emptiness so that even he has to say, come into my life, Lord Jesus. Make me the person and president you intend for me to be. Oh, God, we are so grateful for things like our meeting tonight. Look how freely we're able to get together. We will not in this day take it for granted, for we're seeing encroachments upon our freedom to be Christians out loud. Oh, God, we pray that you would do war against policies which emanate from our government, which curtail our freedoms to do that which is consistent with you. Oh, God, I pray that the gospel would go forth in our land in this day more than ever before through ones such as us. And, oh, God, I think we're going to have to accept a harsh reality, and it's this. The world has not been as attracted to you as they ought to be because of us. So, oh, God, any unattractiveness What I mean by that is hypocrisy, inconsistency, unholiness, and compromise that mars your reputation. Oh, God, I pray you'd put your finger on it and eradicate it. Lord Jesus, make us to be the holy people you intend for us to be, salt and light, so that the world takes note and says, tell us what makes you tick. And then we could tell them, The Lord Jesus has changed our lives, set us free, and he could change yours as well. 
Lord Jesus, we're on the verge of pulling out the stops. We're ready to be radically saved ambassadors for Christ because we're feeling the hour requires it. And we're getting to the point where we're willing no longer just to be cautious. We're finding out we cannot fit in, try as we may. Why not, therefore, stand out for the gospel's sake? So I pray you would empower us so that people's hope would not be in government, but in the cross of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. So we will continue to pray, won't we? That's our weaponry. Do you know we prayed in uh, the name of Jesus Christ, and uh, if, if, if you know of him and reject him, there's only judgment to follow. There's only judgment. To make the wrong decision about who would be the best president is serious, but it pales in comparison to making the wrong decision about the Lord Jesus Christ. There are really, really severe consequences for rejecting him. The writer of Hebrews is about to tell us, however, though there is judgment, there is something far better than judgment. We've called uh, the book of Hebrews the letter of better. The writer wants to persuade us in Hebrews chapter 10, beginning in verse 26, that there indeed is an alternative, an option that's far better than judgment. So I want to read to you the text, but as I do, can I give you an assignment? As I read it, would you make a determination in your own mind? Is the writer of Hebrews, is he speaking in this text to Christians or to those who are not? Is he speaking to believers or those who do not believe? Would you try to decide that for yourself just as I take us through the text? Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26. For if we, so I guess my question is who is the we? Give some thought to it. Believers or non-believers? For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth. Believers or non-believers? See? After receiving the knowledge of the truth. Who's in view? If we do this, there's no longer a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much severer punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace? For we, who is the we? For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. Who are they, believers or non-believers? It is a terrifying thing, you see, to fall into the hands of the living God. But remember the former days when, after being enlightened, believers or non-believers, you endured a great conflict of sufferings, partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations, and partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. For you, who's the you? For you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. My dear friends, to me, it surely sounds like the writer is speaking to Christians. They've been enlightened. They know the truth. They've suffered for the faith. To me, as I read the text, just as I did, it seems to me the obvious 
conclusion is that the writer has something to say in this particular text. It's a warning of sorts to Christians. Now, if that's the case, this is really bad news for us. Because if he's speaking to Christians, he has just opened up the possibility that though we are Christians counting on eternity, we could lose it. Now, I know there are some even here tonight who say yes and amen. (laughs) We can lose our salvation, and that's what this text is talking about. Could I tell you something? The last time I addressed this subject in Hebrews chapter 6, I had uh, two of you apart from one another express real contempt for me. (laughs) Could I tell you something? I'm your brother and you're mine. Do you realize what's happening today? We cannot afford to separate over these things. It's really light versus darkness. Let's allow from from different perspectives amongst light bearers. We are Christians. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son shall not see life. That's how God divides humanity. We have no uh, justification for dividing further. So so don't be filled with contempt towards me because I see it this way and you see it a different way. Let's just say our Father will sort it out, but we have the same Father. So, So some here I know are saying, yes, indeed, that's the point. You can lose your salvation. This clearly justifies it. He's talking about those who obviously are Christians and in some way could walk away from it all and be subject to this rather severe judgment of God. So that would really be a bad thing. So is the writer really speaking of Christians? Here's my answer. Yes and no. And now let's go home. (laughs) See, let me illustrate. If I say to you tonight, my fellow Christians, if I say my fellow Christians, um, do you think I believe everyone here is in fact a Christian? No, I don't. In, in a uh, facility of this size, in a gathering like this, there is the possibility that some, and we're so grateful that you're here, really, really are, that some have not yet come to know the Lord. But since it's likely that statistically the majority do, and it is a church, <laughs> therefore to say things like my fellow Christian will be, would be normal. If, or if someone said, Someone here said to you, my brothers and sisters. That would be normal, even though the one saying that knows not everyone probably is. Do you accept that? Well, folks, that's exactly what the writer of Hebrews is doing. He is addressing the group consisting largely of believers, but knowing not all are. They were Jewish. Hence, this is called Hebrews. Hebrews. And these Hebrews were Hebrew believers. They came to know the Hebrew Messiah, Jesus. But the writer of Hebrews in addressing them, just as I might be tonight, knows not everyone is. And the reason he knows this is that it's a time of trial and persecution, and some are being tempted to go back into Judaism. So he's issuing to them a warning. Now, it's a big blanket statement, but he, and, and so he's speaking to a group consisting of Christians, but he's really targeting non-Christians who are in the group and who have only professed Christ, and that's why they need to be warned. They think merely by coming into the room and hanging out with those who are saved, they are saved as well. 
And this one is saying, you have to read the signals. There are certain tests, evidences of your faith. And one of the evidences of your faith is that you continue in your faith. That is the evidence of being truly reborn. You don't get unreborn. You continue. You may have your ups and downs, for sure, but you continue on with Christ. So he's saying, if you are tempted to cease identifying with Christ by even being in this assembly, you may have found that you are seeing evidence not of the fact that you're regenerated, but that you've never been saved. You have only professed to know the Savior. So that's what's kind of going on over here, it seems to me. So the writer is giving a warning here. So look, verse 26. If we go on sinning willfully after receiving knowledge of the truth, I know that sounds like Christians. Verse 30, for we know him. I know that sounds like Christians. Verse 32, but remember the former days when after being enlightened, I know that sounds like Christians, but I want to tell you something. You can get so close to the things of Christ and yet be so far. I'm telling you. Let me illustrate. In May of this year, 2012, the San Antonio Express News reported an interesting story about an intensely interesting man named Patrick Green. Perhaps you read about it. Uh, Patrick Green was a a very well-known active atheist who said he became a Christian. He claimed he had converted to Christianity while fighting against a nativity scene, (laughs) uh, which was set up outside a courthouse in Athens, Texas. And uh, he was threatening to sue the city and all the rest. And shortly after this, he discovered that his sight was deteriorating and that soon he would be completely blind. Well, that's when a lady, a Christian lady named Jessica Cry, asked her pastor at a Baptist church, at a Baptist church in that area, uh, Pastor, could we help? And the pastor said, yes, we can. And so the church uh, collected thousands of dollars, which they donated for the medical treatment of this actively engaged atheist to spare his sight. And this man, Patrick Green, said that show of compassion broke his heart, softened it, Uh, softened it, caused him to revise his whole opinion about God and not only to be converted to the faith, but also to develop a deep desire to become a pastor and to show appreciation to the entire Christian community in Athens, Texas, and beyond. uh, Patrick Green purchased himself a star for the top of the tree, which was part of the nativity scene he once railed against. Not only that, he also wrote on his own initiative a letter to an organization called the Freedom From Religion Foundation. Gee, I wonder who they voted for. In the, never mind. Uh, the Freedom From Religion Foundation. He wrote a letter to them to explain why their legal arguments against the nativity were not valid. But after his conversion, he was hit with a barrage of assaults, criticisms, and vindictive attacks by the Atheist Association. As a result, he renounced Christianity. He said, I guess I just got all caught up in the excitement of it all. And he went right back to atheism and his vigorous opposition 
of Christians once again. Why don't I just conclude that Patrick Green was saved and then turned from it and thus lost his salvation? I'll tell you why I don't conclude that. Because if one is saved, there are evidences of it, the clearest of which is continuing on with the Savior. Do not underestimate what happens when you get saved. You're born, it's a metaphor, born again. You don't get unborn. You may squander the privileges of your new birth, but it doesn't undo the new birth. Let me tell you another sad story, but before I do, this is, just not, this is not my opinion. 1 John 2.19, they went out from us, like Patrick Green. They went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. You see, continuing in the faith is one of the evidences of true conversion. They would have remained with us, but they went out in order that it might be shown that they are not all of us. You can get very close to the things of Christ and still yet not know Christ. And the writer of Hebrews is saying, take this seriously. You know too much to go guilt-free. You cannot claim ignorance. You know too much about Christ to turn your back upon him now. That's the audience who the writer of Hebrews is, I'll tell you another story. This one, I'll just read the lady's comments. This is a direct quotation. First off, let me say I didn't leave Christianity because of Christians. The Christians I've been privileged to know have been wonderful, sincere, and nothing but supportive to me. My journey out of Christianity was an intellectual one. I, I just could no longer accept the authority of the Bible as a perfect and true book, and I could no longer accept the basic message of the faith. My experience into and then out of Christianity is bookmarked by two deaths. The first was the suicide of my 21-year-old brother when I was only 10 years old. His death forced me to think about some tough issues. Around the same time, I was invited to a junior high group at a church where one of my good friends attended. Wow, they had all the answers to the questions I'd been grappling with. I believed in God up to this point, but now I found out that wasn't enough. I was going to hell unless I accepted Jesus as my personal Savior. Well, I gladly jumped in and took the plunge. For the next 20 years, I lived a happy Christian life, never wavering in my beliefs. Well, maybe that isn't completely true. Like many Christians, my, my views mellowed over time. Did God really send people to hell just for not being Christians? The God of love I'd been taught about wouldn't really do that, would he? I certainly hope not. In case anyone was wondering how committed and sincere a Christian I was, let me reassure you, I was. I was a stay-at-home mom of five who chose to homeschool her children so she could raise them as proper Christians, untarnished by the secular school system. After six years of homeschooling, it became too much for me, so I enrolled them in public school, still committed as ever to raising them to be model Christians. I read Christian books, prayed, Followed the Bible's teachings, marked up my Bible like crazy while I read, listened to Christian music, the list goes on. The second death, which ultimately led to my exit from Christianity, was that of my father-in-law. After battling cancer for many years, he passed away in November of 2008. Little did I know what an impact his death would have on my life. 
I immediately started questioning all the big questions like, uh, uh, did my father-in-law go to hell? How do we know what happens when people die? How do we know the Bible is a perfect book? How do we even know it's true at all? Everything I believed about the universe was up for questioning, and I didn't like where it was leading me. By Christmas Eve of 2008, I was a complete mess. I believed I had committed an unpardonable sin by rejecting Christ, and I was condemned to hell with no chance of redemption. What followed was a two-year journey out of Christianity. I often wondered how everyone could go about their lives and, and not obsess about all the big questions. I, I certainly couldn't. I, I was barely functional. I lived with the fear of hell every day, and yet I, I couldn't go back in time either. My whole world had been shattered, and I was left with trying to pick up the pieces. I'm finally at a place of peace as an atheist. As much as we want answers to the big questions in life, I don't think a God, if he exists, has chosen to communicate them to us. I left Christianity because I no longer trusted its claims, but as time passed, I no longer even respect it. Why don't I just conclude that this lady was indeed saved, walked away from the faith, gave it up, and lost it at one time. I'll tell you why. The Bible does not permit me to come to that conclusion. If you're coming to that conclusion, the burden is on you to explain away the rest of Scripture on the subject of salvation. It's entirely by the Savior. He is the author and finisher of the work. You are simply the recipient. You didn't merit it. Thank God for that. Therefore, you cannot forfeit it. If you walk away from it, you just revealed you never had it. Because one of the key marks of salvation is that you persevere, that you continue. You don't do this by sheer force of will. No, 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 no. You do this, do this by the staying power and the holding power of the one in whose hands you are. You're in the son's hands and the son is in the father's hands and you're not getting away. Look, I have kids. Listen to me. You may have children and grandchildren as well. If they do not do that which is pleasing to me, they will affect the quality of our relationship, but never the reality thereof. I'm their dad, even if they're on the run from me. Let's give the Heavenly Father a little more credit. He's our dad, even though we may turn from him from time to time. But the evidence is you come back because of the Father's holding power, and staying power. Those who think you can lose your salvation have cheapened salvation on the divine side and emphasized too much of it on the human side. Be careful. Be careful. It's all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. You're just the recipient of an inexpressible gift, and he's not an Indian giver. So uh, continuing in the faith is it evidence of it. Um, one more sad story. I, do, I tell you the stories tonight because I didn't actually study the text. No, 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 no I'm, I'm kidding. This one recorded June of 2012. Here's the headline. This, is, this really caught me. Maybe you, got, you saw this. Here's the headline. Church pastors become atheists. Did you read that one? More than 200 church leaders across the country now say they no longer believe in God, including a Houston area pastor. Thank God, not our own, not our own. <laughs> including a Houston area pastor 
who was one of the first to publicly announce his decision, Mike Oss, A-U-S, who was pastor at Theophilus Church in Katy, down the road, Katy, made that announcement during an appearance on a Sunday morning show on MSNBC. What a surprise that they would have him. <laughs> Hardly anyone reads the Bible, said Oss, on the Up With Chris Hayes program. If they did, he says, the whole thing would be in trouble. Yeah, that's what he said. Theophilus church members told Local 2 Investigates they were blindsided by the announcement. They said they had no idea Oss had completely changed his beliefs until they saw him on the program. Oss was a longtime Lutheran pastor at churches in the Houston area, but now he said he no longer believes in the message he had been preaching for almost 20 years. The effect was immediate on his church with about 80 members. Weeks after his announcement, the church dissolved. Members did not want to talk with Local 2 on camera, but they said their pastor's complete change in faith was devastating. My dear friends, you can be so close to Christianity that you're indistinguishable in many respects from Christians and yet not be one. You can even be a pastor and yet not be one. What's the evidence that one is? You continue on with the Savior by his holding power, not by your strength, by his strength, not yours. So verse 26 in the text again. If we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. See the phrase, receive the knowledge of the truth? Doesn't that prove they're Christians? It does not. Look at it carefully. It only says they received knowledge. It does not say they received Christ. Do you see it? The world knows about Christ, but the world has not received him. Head knowledge doesn't save. They had knowledge, but the evidence of the fact that it never took root, that they only had knowledge and not heart opened to the Savior is that they're continuing in a pattern of sin. Look, if we go on sinning willfully, now here's the context. If we go on sinning willfully, there is no longer a sacrifice for sins. You know what it is, what the nature of their sin is? The ongoing rejection of the sin bearer. It's not sin in general. If you remain in the state of knowing about Jesus, but keeping Jesus at arm's length, there is no sacrifice for your sin. If you reject the sin offering, there is no offering for your sin. You see what it's saying? It's not speaking to Christians at all because we're not rejecting the sin offering. We're falling at his feet in praise and worship. Are you kidding me? I'm insulted when someone tells me this is to Christians. It's not. We're not keeping the Lord Jesus at arm's length. We're saying, come into my heart, Lord Jesus. Thank you for saving my soul. Thank you for coming back to get me. Thank you for being the rock on which I stand in this horrifically unsettling day in which we live. Make me to be more like you. This is not the act. Listen, I sin from time to time. So do you. But it's not an unbroken pattern of sin. You know what breaks up our sin? Bouts of righteousness, 
and conviction. That doesn't happen to an unbeliever. It's unbridled, unbroken. There is nothing to stop your sinning. But when God adds into our lives his spirit, the Holy One, he messes us up. He convicts us of sin, makes us miserable. The most miserable creature on earth is a sinning Christian, not a sinning non-Christian. They love that. It's consistent with who they are. The Holy Spirit says, you're quenching me in you. And, and, and what we say is, oh, God, thank you for forgiving me. Oh, God, I confess it. I repent. I come back. Fill me now with your Holy Spirit. Oh, God, let me serve you. Strengthen me so that I do not do this again. It's not a pattern of unbridled sins broken up by bouts of conviction and repentance and righteousness. This is not talking about believers, folks. This is talking about unbelievers. How close can one who merely professes Christ get? Whoa, real close. I told you lots of stories. Look at verse 27. You know what awaits that person? A terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Would you say something that intensely harsh to your child? You, even your disobedient and rebellious child. Let's give God, the heavenly father, a little more credit. He never calls his sons or daughters under any circumstances adversaries. That's talking about the unsaved. You used to be an adversary, alienated. Now you've been brought nigh. Now you're adopted, adopted. Don't you see? You can't get unadopted. Doesn't work that way. You didn't bring anything to the table. God is not disappointed by your misbehavior. He knows what you're made of, for crying out loud. He saved you, warts and all. Your ups and downs don't shock him. Are you kidding me? He doesn't stay up all night wondering how you're going to do tomorrow. He knows when you're going to stumble and fall. You're not an adversary. You're a rebellious kid. That's a big, big difference. The Bible never refers to saved individuals as adversaries of God. It's not right to cause Christians to be unsettled in their faith by using this to target them. This text is a warning for those who think they're them but show no evidences of it because they're tempted to go back into Judaism. Are you kidding? I know something about that. You don't want to go back to a man-made anything as your ladder that you climb up to heaven to please God. You're so grateful that God came down to get you. You don't want to go back into any works kind of a thing. Adversaries. Verse 28, in fact, anyone who sets aside the law of Moses even dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three, then how much more severer punishment do you think he'll deserve now look at this please tell me if a christian if a christian is characterized by three things number one trampling underfoot the son of god listen to me i'm a child of the king and i sometimes sin and uh, against him and disobey but trampling underfoot the son of god that means to treat as completely worthless. That is not the mark of salvation. 
Secondly, this one has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was set apart, sanctified. There are times when I don't appreciate fully the blood of the covenant, neither do you. I get distracted with the things of life, its temptations and its trials and all the rest. We're just human. But to regard as unclean the blood of the Son of God by which he set us apart unto himself? Never. A Christian doesn't do that. Come on. And the third characterization has insulted the spirit of grace. As a sidelight, you can only insult a person, <laughs> not a concept. For, for those, so for those who say the spirit's not a person, you don't insult a thing. You can only, the writer's telling us, you can only insult a person. For crying out loud, they, 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 they dismiss the character of the Son of God, the work of the Son of God, and then insult the Spirit of God. The, these three people in the stories I read to you, that's what they're doing. That's what they're doing. I'm not trying to turn against them. I'm just trying to say, for these reasons... They did not lose anything they didn't possess. You can't lose something if you never had it. How do you know you had it? It has you. It has you. And the evidence that you're truly reborn is that you continue in the faith. Verse 30, for we know him who said, vengeance is mine. I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. Oh, well, people say, see, it says his people. Talk about Christians. No, no, no. Everybody is his people by creation, but a smaller number are his by redemption. Only Christians know him as redeemer. Everyone, to everyone else, he's merely creator. These are people who are his only by virtue of the fact that he created them, but not that he redeemed them because they reject his redemption. It's a terrifying thing, verse 31, to fall into the hands of of the living God. This is not meant to disturb the faith of believers. And I know it is because I counsel with at least one a week who thinks he or she has lost salvation. <laughs> they read some book or some article or went to some different church, who knows what, or don't understand what Hebrews 10 is all about. It's not meant to disturb the believer. It's meant to warn the unbeliever who thinks he's a believer just by hanging out with other believers, singing the songs, doing all this stuff. But remember the former days when after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of sufferings, partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations, and partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. Well, but it says here, verse 32, they were enlightened. They must be Christians. No, 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 no. To be enlightened <laughs> means to understand in your mind. It doesn't say converted. It says enlightened. Enlightened. You know, those of us who go to trips in the Middle East, particularly I'm thinking of Israel, you, you can't run into a person in Israel, Arab, Muslim, Jew, who hasn't heard of Jesus Christ. It's his land. Are you kidding me? They're plenty enlightened. They're just not converted. But it's a bit, yeah, but, but, but look at what they're doing. They're participating in, 
in, in their suffering for the faith, you see. Public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations. They identified with Christians outwardly only. And because they identified with Christians, they got what Christians got. Reproaches and tri tribulations. But now it's not getting to be too much fun anymore. And now they're thinking about going back into Judaism. And the writer is simply saying that very thing is a sign that the gospel has not taken root in your life. Well, look, they did the things, even participating in Christian ministry. Verse 34, they showed sympathy to prisoners. They acted joyfully when their property was seized and all the rest. And because they were doing the things Christians do, they looked enough like Christians to the world that the world persecuted them along with Christians. Someone told me one day, why is it that Christians and churches are always so divisive and so ornery and at odds with one another? But that's operating according to the presumption that everyone in the church is a Christian. You know, I, I, I used to have an expression when I was younger, just because you're born in a bakery doesn't make you a bagel. <laughs> just because you... You walk into Sagemont Church, that does, does, doesn't make you a Christian. Just because you sing in the choir, just because you go on a mission trip, just because just you serve, it doesn't. I'll tell you what makes you a Christian. Christ in you, the hope of glory. And there ought to be evidences. And one of the most, especially in the day in which Hebrews was written, and increasingly in our day, is you're not looking for a better deal. There is none. We're not going to leave you, Lord Jesus, for you have words of eternal life. I would rather die this side of things and be with you forever than deny you. In this day and age, true Christians are going to see an enhanced commitment to persevere in the faith because they're seeing the impoverishment and bankruptcy of what the best of the world has to offer. We're seeing we cannot trust one another, but we can wholly lean on Jesus' name perseverance of the saints we do not persevere out of perspiration we persevere because we're in the hands of almighty god who will not let us go you can get real close and still miss it verse 39 i end with this this is the clincher that proves the writer did not have christians in mind when he issued the warnings he did verse 39 but we, but we are not of those. We are not of those, the one he warned, the one who could renounce Jesus, tread him underfoot, insult the Holy Spirit of grace. But we are not of those who shrink back to what? Destruction. We are distinguished from those who shrink back. We believers are distinguished from those who merely profess Christ, but in fact give evidence of the fact they do not know him because they shrink back. We are not like those who go away, who shrink back into destruction, but, well, then who are we? We are of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. Can you see that? That is really, really important.
My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I don't trust me. I don't have confidence in my flesh and all the rest. Prone to wander and all the rest. has nothing to do with it. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. The Bible says, he who began a good work in you. Who did that? Republicans? Democrats? Southern Baptists? Baptism? Tithing? Singing? He who began a good work in you, Jesus Christ, will complete it until the end. He who began it will complete it. What? I'm not going to lose my salvation. If he who began it will complete it. If he's the author and finisher of it, it will be finished in me, in spite of me. That is called assurance of salvation. That is called eternal security. In an increasingly insecure world, it cannot take away from us what is most valuable to us. Our salvation due to the holding power of the Savior. This writer is clearly dissociating himself and fellow believers from those who shrink back unto, discussion, uh, unto destruction. Folks, listen to this. You know what the most blessed message in the history of humankind is? What we call the gospel. But do you want to know what the severest curse in the history of humankind is? That which we call the gospel. I'll tell you what I mean by that. If you hear it and reject it, the consequence is eternal separation from the one who gave the message. This thing about knowing and being enlightened and participating. And I used to go to that church. I tried church. I was even baptized. I did this. I did that. Where are you? Where are you? Ah, hypocrites. Ah, I don't like the music. Ah, they're always asking for money. Ah, ah. You just turned what God intended to be a blessing into the basis of his legitimate judgment of you. Because you won't be able to say, I didn't know. No one told me. No one showed me. I didn't know. Because God will say, you wore their colors, but were not of them. And the evidence is, you went out from them, thus demonstrating it. You see it? Now, if you want to lose your salvation, have a good time. But you can't take that away from me. That's a song, isn't it? You can't take that away from me. I'm disappointed in the election for a few minutes. We got work to do, and Father knows best. If what I thought would be a good thing, God said, I got a better idea. Oh, my goodness, he's got a better idea. So my disappointment lasts for about two seconds. <sighs> Saved to the uttermost. That lasts forever. Listen, I got to tell you something. I'm no writer of Hebrews or anything like that. We're just sharing today his words. Be warned, please. Please be warned. Make sure you're not just knowledgeable about who Jesus is and what he has done. Make sure, make sure there is room in your heart for him. Make sure you've opened it wide. Make sure you've said, come into my life, Lord Jesus. I ask you to forgive me, for I have sinned. 
I owe you in a way I cannot repay. You came down to take me in and take me up. Thank you for adopting me into your family. Grab hold of me, Lord Jesus, even when my hold on you is a little weak. Do not let me go, no matter what. I want to be able to sing on Christ the solid rock I stand. No, all other ground is sinking. Lord Jesus, in this day of change and uncertainty and all the rest, I love the fact that you are the rock upon which our salvation is based. Thank you that you will not let us go. We are not better grandparents and parents than you are. We persist in pursuit, even of our wayward children and grandchildren, how much more you. How could it be that you would have redeemed and ransomed us with such a costly price, your own blood, and failed to bring us home? Is my sin greater than your grace, or is grace greater than all my sin? That's what it is. That's why we give you the glory and the thanks in the midst of this day. That's why we have joy in our hearts and the song in our mouth. And that's why we're not going anywhere else. We're continuing on with the one who has redeemed us now and forevermore. His name, your name, is the Lord Jesus Christ. In whose name we pray, amen.